Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, coming in live from California and Darcy, my co-host, from the other side of the country. Yeah, I'm, I'm still stuck in Alabama. You get to travel and do all the fun things. I'm just here in sweet home Alabama. The miracle of technology allows us to mm-hmm. record this simultaneously and merge our tracks, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. So... Um, please forgive my sound quality again. I'm in a house that has absolutely no carpeting. (laughs) Everything is a little echoey. So, um, hopefully this is just a temporary thing until we head back home and I'm back in my normal recording space. So please forgive the mediocre quality of the recording today. But, um, in the meantime, Darcy, we got a little update on this Vicky and Casey White case, right? Yeah, man. Evidently, the motel room that they stayed in is now listing this extremely high price and has a waiting list. Did you hear this? I So you sent me the thing, like you sent me the link, and I feel like extremely high price is playing a little fast and loose with the terms, but it is like tripled what it normally goes for. Do you know how much it normally goes for? I think like under $50. So now it's like $200. Yeah. Which is weird because it's like this really cheesy kind of like. I mean, it's a roadside motel. motel. It's not even a chain. Yeah. So like, I thought when we first covered this, I thought it was like a Motel Forty, or like for, Motel Four or Motel Forty Two or whatever. It's it's literally called Motel Forty One, which is I don't oh. even think that's a chain. So, hang on, let me see if it's on Hotels.com. <laughs> <laughs> right. Eh. I mean. You don't have the option on Hotels.com of looking for a specific room. It says normal. It says fifty-two dollars for a night. Yeah. So and it's in Evansville, Indiana. It's an interesting little hotel there. It doesn't even really look like a hotel when you look at the pictures. But in any case, the hotel is now listing much higher prices for that specific room if you want to stay in it, um, which is interesting. Yeah. It's a room they stayed in during their little hideout. Yeah, and this is according to the receptionist. So I mean, take that with a grain of salt. But right, two- I think I think people are just calling and being like, "I want to stay in that room," and then the demand has gone up so high. How do you know the receptionist like- isn't just pocketing an extra two hundred bucks, giving them the room for the well, normal Well, I mean, I, if if she did or if they did, I don't think they would have been talking about it to the news. Maybe she just you wanted know? her 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> but also, like, here's the thing. If you want to go and, like, stay at, like, a murder house or a crime house or something, like, I don't get that. But if that's your thing, fine, whatever. But with this one, you're just in no one Evansville. No themselves in this hotel. So. Well, and not even that. Like, you're just in Evansville. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do in Evansville, Indiana? I've been there. It's fine. I guess just, okay, you're so, just in Evansville. Yeah, it seems incredibly cheesy. Yeah. So former corrections officer Vicki White and the inmate Casey White fled together from Lauderdale County Jail in Florence, Alabama, April 29th. So they, these guys were on the run for 11 days. And I guess right. a portion of that they stayed in this hotel. They didn't even stay the entire and they time were, there. Right. And they were paid up for two weeks, but they only stayed there for a week. And they had a relationship for at least two years. 
these guys are not related. She's She was 56, he was 38. Their time as fugitives ended May 9th in Evansville, Indiana, about 300 miles north of the Alabama jail. So they only made it 300 miles in that limited period of time that they were out. You would have thought they would have gone farther away. But they were tracked down well, at this Hotel 41, and a short car chase ensued after that. Yeah. Where they rammed this Cadillac sedan that the two had taken into a ditch, and Vicki White killed herself with a self-inflicted gunshot wound, and Casey White was arrested. They had planned initially for a shootout with the police. They stayed in room 150 in Motel 41 for a week, planning to stay for another week before their plan was spoiled by this. the police. They initially checked into the motel with the help of a transient man who had paid for them to book the room. Um, the receptionist says that quite a few people have been calling and there's a waiting list for this room. The average room cost is about $63 per night for that particular room. But room 150 on the ground floor now costs $75 to $100 to book. And the receptionist says the interest from the media has also been high. I'm getting like a million phone calls for it, the receptionist said. So evidently Casey White now faces capital murder charges and the stabbing death of Connie Ridgway. He's also... He was already serving time in state prison for other convictions. As we mentioned in this earlier podcast, mm-hmm. just jump back a couple of episodes and you can hear our full episode on Casey White and Vicki White. Um, this was for a 2015 killing. He'd been extradited back to Alabama and it's unclear whether he has retained an attorney for these new charges. The day they disappeared, Vicki White cleared out deputies who transported inmates from the jail, officials said. She then escorted Casey White by herself even though police require the two deputies transport such inmates, Lauderdale County Sheriff Rick Singleton said their cover story was that Casey White had to go to court for a mental health evaluation, but this evaluation never happened. And after that, they were found in Indiana with a cache of weapons. Four handguns and several semi-automatic weapons, including an AR-15, were recovered from the car, the sheriff said. Officials also discovered about $29,000 in cash. So we all know what happened ultimately in this case. If you want to hear the, the full case yeah. or the updates, just listen to our last two episodes on that. But And if you want to go check out their hotel room, go to in- don't. Evansville, Indiana. <laughs> don't, don't do that. It, save your money. There's It's literally just a motel, a, a highway motel. It's not going to look any different from any other highway motel. Yeah, I, I think it's just kind of ridiculous. Just save your money. Yeah, it just goes to show that people will try to cash in on anything nowadays. Right. Um. The other big update this week is the Josh Duggar case. So Josh was sentenced to 12.5 years after his child Mm -hmm. pornography conviction. Evidently, Judge Timothy Brooks has sentenced Josh Duggar to 151 months in prison, which is about 12.5 years, for receipt of child pornography, which is interesting. He's being convicted for receipt of child pornography. Mm -hmm. The sentencing follows his trial in December, where he was found guilty on the final day of his child pornography trial in Fayetteville, Arkansas. The alum of TLC's 19 Kids and Counting, about a large family with conservative Christian values, has been charged with one count of downloading and one count of possessing child pornography. Duggar, 33, was arrested on charges of possession of child pornography back in April And then in May, a federal agent testified that in 2019, images that showed children, including toddlers, being sexually abused were downloaded onto a computer at a car dealership owned by Josh Duggar. He pleaded not guilty to the charges against him, and the trial for Duggar's case began November 30th after originally being scheduled for July and then postponed because of COVID, right? Right. Included testimony from multiple Duggar family members. 
Duggar was one of the many stars of the TLC's 19 Kids and Counting for nearly a decade. The show chronicled the lives of their parents, Jim, Bob, and Michelle, and their many offspring, and it was canceled in 2015 after Josh admitted to sexually abusing five teenage girls when he was a teenager. Two of his sisters, Jessa and Jill Duggar, later came forward as two of the victims. So, if you want to listen to that, go back and check out our earlier episode on that topic. Um, so I want to give a special shout out to the lady that did my lashes in Orlando. Her lash um, business is called Lash Dreams. She was really cool, neat, kind of a true crime fan and just a really cool person nice. altogether. She's outside of Orlando. And if you want to find her, you can just do Google Maps for Lash Dreams and you can find her. Um, she's open normal hours. She has a whole group of girls that work with her that just do an amazing job. Um, out in Orlando doing lashes. So look her up or you can grab her on social media. She's at lash underscore dreams. Her name is Chrislyn and she's just really, really cool. So I highly, highly recommend. I can vouch for the quality because I can see Sarah's lashes through (laughs) Skype and they look wonderful. So awesome. Um, And in any case, let's jump into the main case for the day. And I'm going to talk about something that has come up in the media lately as well. And that's the case of Candy Montgomery. And do you know this case? I do not know this case. So is this the thing that is like the ad is on Hulu? Yes. With Jessica Biel? Yes. Jessica Biel plays Candy Montgomery. I've seen that it is a show and that is the extent of my There is also an HBO special coming out on this one starring um, one of the Olsen sisters not the the two from Full House but the I think her name is Elizabeth Olsen their older sister Elizabeth yeah sorry the younger sister um, she plays Candy Montgomery in the HBO special about it so um, it's been getting a little bit of publicity lately but um, when you think of axe murderers what immediately comes to mind to you? Lizzie Borden, um, right? Mike, or, oh, I was going to say Mike Myers, and so I married an yes, axe murderer. <laughs> yes. Well, if you think of female axe murderers, you think of Lizzie Borden. Oh, Lizzie Borden. Or yeah. I think of, when I hear the word axe murderers, I think of the Vizalia axe murderers. Yeah. Um, and basically shadowy figures from horror movies, right? So Friday the 13th. Yeah, and also the New Orleans. There was an axe yeah. murderer in New Orleans. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a gruesome kind of a picture, right? We definitely it don't is. think of suburban housewives in Texas communities, right? No. Quiet little Texas bedroom towns. But by all accounts, Candy Montgomery was a normal girl growing up. She was born November 15th, 1949, Candace Lynn Wheeler. And she was a small okay. town girl. I don't know about you, but I'm fascinated by these stories of these seemingly normal women like Lizzie Borden or Betty Broderick, who just snap one day and completely go off the rails, right? Yeah. Every time so I hear like, about it, I get fascinated by these cases. It's it, I'm interested in hearing this because I think a lot of it has to do with the storytelling. So, like, was Betty Broderick completely normal before she snapped or, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and so same thing with Candy. Well, that's like, part what, of why I like them, too, is getting into the yeah. analysis of were they normal or did they yeah. just appear normal or did they just right. want to appear normal? But let's drop into the little town of Wiley, Texas in the 1980s. Okay, okay, first of all, Wiley. it's mid-1980. Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about the town, too, but it's mid-1980. Okay. So this is just the okay. start of a new decade. I'm thinking Friday Night Lights. Here's what's going on in the 80s at that time. The movie. President Carter had authorized legislation to bail out Chrysler Corporation. That was a big one. That was one of the first major yeah. auto industry bailouts. 
Israel and Egypt established diplomatic relations, which was a big thing back then. Um, mm-hmm. The U.S. and Canada coordinated an escape of six American diplomats as part of the Canadian caper. Um, for those of you who don't know what that is, maybe, maybe it's the movie Argo. Maybe, maybe <laughs> she doesn't. Maybe Darcy doesn't know what that is either. But it was a joint a joint covert rescue by the Canadian. Did government. you just accuse me of not knowing a history? Uh, well, did I you know? know what the Canadian caper was? Yes, I've read the book. I've seen the movie. Okay. Well then, oh my I didn't know gosh, you were, I am... were good on Canadian history. Well, it's less Canadian history than it is Iran right. hostage crisis exactly. history. And that's but good for you, okay. Yeah. But basically, they rescued these American diplomats you. who evaded capture during the seizure of the U.S. embassy in Tehran, Iran, uh, November fourth, um, nineteen twenty-nine, after the Iranian Revolution. I'm deeply offended. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about the Iran controversy you know what? you seem to be an expert. I would love to. So they, Iran had a Shah that was in, in place, and he was pro-Western um, in his policies and oil exports and things like that. And the traditional Islamic population particularly led by college students over like they they raided the u.s embassy and they occupied the u.s embassy and they overthrew the shah had left iran because he went to the states to have surgery okay um and while he was out this is when this happened so they occupied the embassy for 500 days something like that Holy moly, over, over a year yeah, it was over a year. Um, and uh, and they installed now what they have is the Ayatollah. And so he is basically a, uh, an Islamic religious leader who is the political leader of their country as well. Which the U.S. is typically not down for. Usually we want some kind of a democratic rule in the countries that we support. It's... It's less that than, I mean, that is part of it, yes, but it is less about that and more about the fact that he is not willing to give us the easy trade deals on oil that we were looking for. Yeah. So, like, basically we were exploiting Iran. Like, the the U.S. and the U.K. were exploiting Iran with their oil. And basically Iran has a right to be like, this is our oil. We're not going to just like get screwed on this deal anymore. Yeah. So it, that's kind of what it is, but, but it has also since become a very strictly Sharia law, um, uh, very insular nation now. Um, which, but that all started in 79. does not well for women because women lose a lot of their rights. They have to wear the burqa. They there's a lot of stuff that they, um, it's considered women losing their rights. So that's all I'm going right. to say. I'm not going to get into But apparently, detail. like, before 79, Tehran was, like, a hop and play. Like, it was cool. Like That's looking. very interesting, too. And it's a story that I think, yeah. you know, we should cover in greater detail at some later point because it's really fascinating. I would love I apologize to. if I miss, um, if I underestimated your interest and ability to discuss. <laughs> I accept your apology. But it is. It's a fascinating, <laughs> fascinating topic that I just, I, every time I see an article on it, I read it because it's just so interesting to yeah. me especially um, Middle Eastern countries back in the day, as opposed to how they are mm-hmm. now, and some of the changes that are mm-hmm. happening right now in Iraq and surrounding countries with respect to women's rights and the institution of um, more strict yeah. Islamic rule. So, And I will say, 
the movie Argo is better than the book Argo, which is very rare, but the movie yeah, is that better. that is definitely, in my opinion, a rarity, because I have seen very, mm-hmm. very few movies in my time that beat the book. But yeah. in any case, um, the USCGC Blackthorn WOB391-6 collides with a tanker Capricorn in Tampa, Florida, killing 23 Coast Guard crew members that year, which was mm. huge. Um, the first winter ascent of Mount Everest happened, which I guess evidently was a huge thing Whoa. because they had only done okay. it during certain seasons of the year because it was considered too dangerous yeah. until that point. But they had the first winter ascent that year. Um, Miracle on Ice in Lake Placid, New York happened where the yeah. U.S. hockey team defeated the Soviet Union 4-3, to which was there's been many movies made about that since then, right? <sighs> That's such a good movie, Miracle. President Carter announced the boycott of Summer Olympics in Moscow and protest of the Soviet war in Afghanistan, which was mm-hmm. huge. Because um, that was also when USSR invaded Afghanistan was in 1979. Yeah, yeah that was a big, big time back then um, for political mm-hmm. events and a lot of pol- political upheaval. Um, the Husha JR episode happened on Dallas that year. I was wondering if this was around the time of Dallas and Dynasty. Okay, so Famous it is. show, da- the original yeah. show who Dallas. Shot and who Shot JR happened that year. Yeah. Um, crude Oil Windfall Profits Tax Act helped the U.S. economy rebound. Again, there was a lot of stuff happening with oil and the, the gas mm-hmm. industry and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, the U.S. did sever relations with Iran that year. Uh, Saddam Hussein killed a philosopher Mohammed Bakir al-Sadir in three days of torture in Iran, and that was kind of the set-off and, and sort of the beginning of us looking at that country and Saddam Hussein. Eight servicemen died attempting to end the Iran hostage crisis. Yep. Um, that was the Iranian, the Iranian embassy siege began in London that year. Six armed gunmen took over the Iranian embassy in London um, with 26 people being held hostage. They demanded the release of prisoners in Kyrgyzstan and safe passage out of the UK. Um, five were killed in that and one were captured. Two hostages were killed in that. And that was really, really brutal. I guess at one point they weren't mm-hmm. getting what they wanted and they killed a hostage and threw him out of a window onto the street below. I mean, mm-hmm. just outrageously like brutal. Yeah. Um, the World Health Organization confirmed smallpox eradication that year. Hey. Yeah. Um, the Liberian freighter MV Summit Venture collided with Sunshine Skyway Bridge over Tampa Bay. So Tampa had some craziness going Dude, on that year. That 1,400 bridge. square foot section of the bridge collapsed with 35 people on it. Six cars and a Greyhound bus fell into the water from 150 feet. That bridge is the bridge of my nightmares. Because I grew up going to Tampa. My dad's parents lived in Tampa. Or they lived in Seminole, which is like on the St. Pete side of Tampa. And... So we had to go across that bridge all the time. And I hate, I'm terrified of bridges. I hate bridges. And bridge is there anymore, is it? They, it's a, they have a new bridge, a new bridge. Yeah. But, the, but we used to go over the Sunshine Skyway and like, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Just bonkers. Can you imagine? Didn't say how many people died, but it just basically a 1,400 square foot section of the bridge just plummets into the water. Yeah. Cars were just driving off the side, off the end because it, they couldn't see because yeah. it was foggy. So they had no yeah. idea that the bridge was out. Oh and so God, they were just horrific. driving off the edge. That's just co- completely yeah. horrific. I can't Same with imagine. The mm-hmm. um, speaking of disasters, Kalamazoo got hit with tornadoes that year and Jimmy Carter declared a federal disaster area in that particular zone. 
And Mount St. Helens erupted that year, killing 57 people and yeah. causing $3 billion in damage. And I'm aging myself a little bit, but I was alive when Mount St. Helens erupted. And whew. That's why it looks like it has a bowl at the top yeah. of it now. Wild, 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 wild. It's, I think, the only volcanic eruption in the continental United States in the last, in history, recorded history, right? Uh, I don't know about recorded history. Well, recorded in modern history. Sorry. Right. Right. I think so. I mean, I think the, the only other ones would be Alaska and the Pacific Rim that I would. So it's pretty wild. Um, plans for Quebec independence were rejected. So Quebec was, was trying to be like, Hey dudes, we want to be our own country. And Canada was like, Nope. I like how people like that are from Canada. They're from Quebec. They're called Quebec, Quebecois. Because it's like French. It's interesting. And because it is sort of a a more French-centered part of the country, I think that there is definitely a division between the people that are in that region and the people that are in, like, say, Vancouver. (laughs) Yeah, there's a huge divide there. And people that are French-speaking Canadians look down upon the ones that don't speak French. So it's an interesting kind of a dynamic there. Um, Pac-Man was released that year by Nameco, the famous Pac-Man video game. Oh, CNN started broadcasting that year, the cable news network. Big stuff, right? Mm. Seven tornadoes in Nebraska caused about $300 million in damage. A lot of tornadoes and natural disasters and crashes and all kind of other stuff happening that year. But Nelson Mandela was rallying supporters for freedom from apartheid at that time period. Um, Italian Mm. 870 mysteriously exploded, killing 81 people. It's called the Utica disaster or used to cut disaster. Uh, Zimbabwe joined the United Nations. Hmm. Uh, the institution of Sharia law in Iran happened that year, um, which we kind of touched on earlier. And it's basically canonical law based on Cor- uh, the Quran teachings, religious and secular duties and significant penalties for um, violation of that. And they got a new flag as well. Um, The dictator Pinochet departed in Chile, and a new constitution was enacted. Um, Iraq invaded Iran. So I kind of spoke about that earlier with Hussein, um, Mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein. Michael Myers was expelled from Congress that year, and he was the first person in Congress to be expelled since the Civil War. Let's unpack that. I know who Michael Myers is because I love the Halloween movies, and I know Mike Myers, the Canadian comedian. I don't know of a senator named Michael Myers having been expelled from... Myers was expelled from Congress in 1980 after taking bribes from an undercover FBI agent as part of the ABScam investigation. So Myers 77 conspired with and bribed the former judge of elections for Philadelphia's 39th ward to allegedly to illegally add votes for certain candidates into the Democratic Party during primary elections from 2014 to 2016 as well, according to the Justice Department. Interesting stuff. So what's the ab scam? I was about to ask if this was ab scam. Okay. Okay, this one I don't know a whole, whole lot about, but I know that it was an FBI sting where they tried to or where they got a bunch of congressmen and senators um on wiretaps accepting bribes um they had fbi agents disguise themselves as um middle eastern businessmen 
and they met in Miami and they had like a yacht and all of this stuff. And like, basically they, they, that, I think they had a party on the yacht or something like that. And that's where they got them all recorded accepting bribes from these businessmen. Wow. For bribery and corruption. Seven members of the United States Congress. The two-year investigation initially targeted trafficking and stolen property and corruption of prominent businessmen, but later involved a public corruption investigation. So this was like the first guy sort of ejected from political house in the U.S. since the Civil War. Um, Mm. But they videotaped politicians accepting bribes from a fictitious Arabian company in return for various political favors. More than 30 political figures were investigated and six members of the House of Representatives and one senator were convicted. So that was some big stuff back then. Yeah. Because people, I think, have this perception that U.S. politicians should be honest and forthright. And well, especially after this the whole was, Nixon thing happened. I was going to say, this was a couple years and, after Nixon. Yeah. And, and Carter ran on the whole transparency thing. I will be honest with you and all of this stuff. And so it seemed like things were taking a turn. But then at the same time, like things didn't really change that much from the Nixon year. Because no. Spiro Agnew Clearly. was taking bribes when he was vice president. So, At I mean, times. it was, yeah. <laughs> our beautiful country and our political system. Right. Um, there was an Oktoberfest terror attack in Munich, which killed 13 people mm. and injured 211. Um, a major earthquake happened in Algeria that killed 3,500 and left, left 300,000 people homeless. NASA took the first images of the rings of Saturn. It was the closest view ever um, that oh, year. Cool. Earthquakes in southern Italy killed 3,000. So a lot of earthquakes happening, too. Um, Led Zeppelin officially disbanded that summer mm-hmm. after the drummer died. John Lennon was yeah. murdered by Mark David Chapman that year, too. Which and he sat down and started reading Catcher in the Rye. Big, big thing happening. 3M started selling its post-it notes. Hey. Right? That always makes me think of Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. I don't recall that movie. I don't think I saw it. What? Oh, somebody out there right. gets it. Uh, severe summer heat in southern U.S. killed over 1,000 people in 20 states. Jeez. Fire destroys the MGM Grand in Vegas. Um, John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown, was sentenced to death that year for the killing of yep. 33 boys. And the jury came from Rockford, Illinois. Hey. Which is where uh, my house is. Mm-hmm. Um, the Rubik's Cube debuted that year. Um, the Staggers Act, which deregulated the rails industry, largely it was largely untouched since the 1880s, but that then um, created a deregulation of the railroad industry that year, which was a big thing hmm. for the railroad people. Um, the movies Superman 2, 9 to 5, Raging Bull, Coal Miner's Daughter, and Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back came out that year. Those are the big movies. I have not seen any of those. Uh, music was ABBA, ACDC, Adam and the Ants, Black Sabbath, a lot of metal stuff. Yeah. Lonnie, David Bowie, um, Michael Jackson, Queen, Pink Floyd, Diana Ross, Paul McCartney, The Police, Olivia Newton-John. So a little bit of everything, right? Some metal and glam rock. Right. Um, the Facts of Life. General Hospital, Dallas, Chips, and Dukes of Hazard were big on TV. Yasser Arafat became the president of the Palestinian National Council that year. Ah. It was a big political thing there. Um, Ronald Reagan was elected that year at the end of the year. Yep. Japan became the world's largest automaker that year. Spain and UK reopened the border between Gibraltar and Spain after closure for about 10 years. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, domestic camcorders 
became available that year, as well as fax machines. So we thought we were huge, 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 and these huge <laughs> campgoers and really big fax uh-huh. machines came out that year. We were business, business in the back and the front that year <laughs> 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 with all that stuff. And then meanwhile, in Wiley, Texas, this is basically a northeastern suburb of Dallas. Okay. It's along Route 78, 24 miles north of the city of Dallas. And this is the city of Wiley, basically. It was originally called Nickelville after the name of the first store that had been organized in the 1870s. So it's a pretty old town. Okay. It was historically known for its involvement in the railroad industry, which I kind of mentioned with the yeah. deregulation stuff. Um, and it was named after Colonel William D. Wiley, a right-of-way agent for the railroad that ran through there. And he was also a Civil War veteran. A right-of-way um, agent. Yes. Hmm. So one of those great guys that works um, at the railroad and wears those really cool hats. I... <laughs> you know, the little railroad hat. I'm going to have to post a picture of it in the I don't social know. media. I don't know. Um and basically, this town grew a lot during the Great Depression, unlike a lot of other really old towns from that period that sort of shrank mm-hmm. with the Depression. Onions were the town's main cash crop, and it was once known as Wide Awake Wiley because many of the businesses stayed open until well past midnight some nights for some weird reason. Hmm. Um, it has a total of about 35.317 square miles. 40% of it is covered by water. And it is part of the subtropical region with a hot, dry climate in the summer and cold, mild, rainy winters. Okay. So this little town, basically very slow-paced and tight-knit um, until about June 1980. So it's the 13th, Friday the 13th to be more specific. Yes. It's around 11 p.m. And resident Ronald Parker gets a panicked phone call. He gets it from Alan Gore. So Alan is in Minnesota on a business trip and cannot reach Betty, his 30-year-old wife. Okay. It's been a few hours, and he's concerned. Richard Parker agrees to go check on Betty, and he is their neighbor, so he lives near Betty and Alan, Mm -hmm. right? He grabs a few people with him just in case, and they go to check on Betty, going to the front of the house first, and they find the door unlocked. And this is a little bit suspicious, but... Maybe not so suspicious at the same time because small town communities, sure. sometimes they don't lock their doors. Um, but it seemed unusual to some of the people that were on this little search, mm-hmm. right? Um, this group of men enter the Gore house and they call out for Betty and there's no answer. There's nothing but silence. So the Gore family has two children. They have a one-year-old who is crying alone in her crib, obviously unattended for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And there's a five-year-old who had been spending the night somewhere else. Okay. So she obviously was not there, and she wasn't supposed to be there. So these men search the house, and they find blood in several locations, including doorknobs and on walls. Ooh. And this leads them to the utility room, which is slash laundry right. room. Um, and the door is shut, and there's a light on. So, again, this is highly suspicious. Yeah. There's, like, blood leading up to this and then blood on the door, and, and something's got to be wrong, right? So they open the door and they enter and find Betty there. She is a bloody mess. They initially thought she shot herself and committed suicide because it was just Whoa. her head and face were so mangled. Um, and there was so much blood. So Betty Gore herself was born in 1950 in a small Kansas town. She was the oldest child of three. 
and she was pretty and popular and very involved in plays and student council, etc. She was from, um, but from a pretty young age, Betty knew she wanted to be a teacher, specifically for elementary. She went to college and met a grad student named Alan Gore while she was there. Al Gore. Alan had been a teacher. <laughs> Alan Gore. I guess, yeah. <laughs> ah. Um, Alan had been a teaching assistant, and not long after she finished the class that he was her teaching assistant in, the two became a couple, and they ended up getting married January 25th, 1970. They were pretty happy from all accounts, and the couple ended up moving to Dallas in the late 1970s, and then they moved to Wiley shortly thereafter and had some kids, and Betty got a job teaching at a local school. So they were financially stable. Um, In that period of time, it wasn't necessarily as common for women to be out in the workplace, but since Betty is, they, you know, are comfortable financially. Mm -hmm. And they settled in, they joined the local church. There's basically, the churches in a lot of these small southern towns are like the social center for the community. And this is where Betty meets Candy Montgomery. So Candy is a friendly and attractive housewife, and she's well-liked. She's basically very involved in the community as well. She sings in the choir. She teaches Sunday school. She's on all these church committees and the whole nine yards, Mm -hmm. right? So Candy had been an army brat and had traveled quite a bit growing up um, and had learned to be friendly and sociable from a young age. Because, you know, when you travel quite a bit with the military transferring you all the time, you have to either learn to do that or you become kind of an introvert. But at the same time, people say that Candy had grown up being a little bit rebellious and she had been a little bit overly interested in boys, right? Connecting with boys and interested in boys and sort of obsessed with boys, which I don't necessarily think that's too unusual. I think there are many young girls that grow up kind of boy crazy. So, and no one thinks anything strange with that, but that was what she was known for. Um, Betty and Candy became instant friends. They were the same age and their kids played as well Mm -hmm. and hung out together. Betty had a second child in 1979 and she was known to suffer from postpartum depression, which was very um, misunderstood during that period of time. And I think women that were suffering from it took a lot of heat for it because people didn't understand what it was. And it had really tested her relationships and strained her marriage to Alan. Mm. So they go to marriage counseling and they were planning this trip to Europe around the time that this attack happens. And they had actually planned this European vacation a week before Betty was found dead in her own laundry room. Blood smears and splashes of blood were everywhere and they indicated to police that something very wrong happened. The police also find an additional weapon, which is an axe. And they quickly find out that Betty was brutally attacked by an intruder because she couldn't have killed her herself with an axe, right. right? There were numerous wounds on her hands, arms, and head, and it basically showed that she'd been the victim of a very vicious attack. Jeez. And I think the men that initially found her thought she had been, um, she, she had shot herself because there was just so much blood everywhere, and I don't really think they were able to look at it in any great detail because, you know, you find somebody like that, and of course you're going to back out and yeah. call the police right away, right? Um. <sighs> There were numerous wounds on her hands, arms, and head. And this basically, other parts of her body had wounds as well. Um, And it looked like it was something out of a horror film. Very gruesome and exaggerated. But do something like this, especially in a little town like Wiley. Mm -hmm. The number of blows, the smears, spatters, and all of that was definitely overkill. So 
it also showed that there had obviously been a significant struggle struggle between Betty and her attacker. Mm -hmm. But when you think of like multiple blows and large number of blows, what do you think, right? We've been through this before. Like, yeah, somebody that, I mean, it's like a emotional attack. Yeah, somebody that knew, knew that right. person, right? It's not, a random stranger doesn't typically go in and hit somebody a hundred times, right? Well, it's usually one or two and then they run. Yeah, right? I don't even think a random stranger really uses an axe. Like, no. That's like a, that's not a quick weapon. No. Um, it was also obvious to investigators that someone had tried to clean and then stopped and left. Huh. So this provided them with some clues, including fingerprints and footprints. Ah. They found a bloody footprint, and it was obvious by looking at it that it was from a pair of flip-flops. Okay. And they were smaller in size. Mm. So either a child or a woman. Mm-hmm. They find blood in the shower and lots of hair. Obviously, the killer had showered, and finally, the paper was open. And it was open to the movie section and an ad for The Shining. Like the newspaper? Yeah. Huh. And there were also blood drops on the paper open to that section. Oh, weird. Which was super creepy, right? I remember having to look up movie times in the the newspaper growing up. Back in the day. Back in the day. So police speak to the neighbors and Alan Gore. And he called again as they were speaking to the neighbor. And he basically tells them where where he's been. And the police at that point, tell him that his wife is dead, mm. which shocking, right? Yeah. Um, he gives them a rundown of where he had been and where he was and agrees to come home immediately. Cause he's away in Minnesota on this business mm-hmm. trip. Right. Um, the two normally communicated on Alan's frequent road trips for work. Uh, but this time was different. He tells the police he couldn't reach his wife and had tried numerous times to call her and then called the neighbor. So he kind of communicates all of this to police as well. He is very cooperative, um, but he seems to be disproportionately calm to them. So investigators think this is really strange and he has no emotion and this seems a little out of the ordinary. But again, I think we kind of have talked about this as well. There really is no one right or wrong way to act emotionally when you are the victim of a crime or if you or your spouse is the victim of a crime. So, I mean, I think we kind of know from experience that this, you know, there is no right way to act, but they thought that he wasn't acting right. And initially people thought he killed his wife before he left for this business trip, because we always know that, you know, the spouse is always the first primary suspect in, in situations like this. Um, and part of this was related to the mutilation of Betty's face. Mm -hmm. And this is usually a classic sign of an acquaintance, ha- of an acquaintance having committed the crime. And it's considered an intimate crime. Right. There were a total of 41 blows, many of them after Betty's death, and 28 of them were to the head. So this was clearly overkill. Um, in the kitchen, investigators find burned coffee, suggesting that possibly the, killer, the killing happened before the husband left. But the bloody footprints suggest someone small, so they have to kind of rule the husband out. By June 14th, 1980, police go back into the house, and Alan is there with his family at that point. They had not left the house. They were all kind of, they had cleaned up and were staying there with the family. Police were about to leave, and one of Betty's brothers reports someone calling them, kind of crank calling them at the house, saying that they'd killed Betty. Whoa. The crank call started shortly after the killing, and they basically were pushing to trace Betty's family phones. 
so they try to figure out who's making these crank okay. calls. Um, the, that day as well, a five-year-old girl had come to play it with Betty's daughter, and she claims that she saw Candy Montgomery leave Betty's house around 11 in the morning on the day of the murder, which, this is incredible. A five-year-old? Yeah. A five-year-old is giving a kind of testimony? Like, in my um, limited experience with young children, a five-year-old, like, you're not going to trust the testimony of a five-year-old for a whole lot right? well you, and you got to be really careful the way you ask because like kids will kind of read your They're highly impressionable, cues. Right? yeah yeah um but police questioned candy on june 15th and she says she was at church until around 10 30 then she had gone over to betty's house to pick up a swimsuit for her daughter she said that her and, and betty chatted for a few minutes and then she left going back to the church around noon okay so police basically push Candy, and she suggests that her prints are in the house because she was there earlier. So she's got this ready right. excuse on the tongue, right? And she said she'd grabbed the suit in the utility room, so her prints were definitely going to be there. She seems friendly and helpful, and the police soon discover um, that the family is getting more calls. And they trace them to a mental hospital. And they end up being completely Whoa. unrelated. And this person calling, crank calling from the mental hospital was ruled out. So he didn't kill Betty. Oh my gosh, but they still, they basically still have Candy, though, on the hook. Right. Um, June 16th, 1980, Betty's funeral happens. And police question Alan Gore again. He claims that his marriage was good. But he does admit they'd been in a fight on the day of her murder. So there's some suspicion being cast upon Alan mm -hmm. Gore again. Betty claimed that she was pregnant again and she was scared and nervous because she had had that postpartum depression previously. So she'd sure. gotten into an argument with Alan about this because she didn't want to be pregnant and abortion wasn't really a thing that was like acceptable, especially in small church towns. Mm -hmm. And they check out Alan's story and it all appears to match up. Um, then Alan calls the police chief and tells them he'd had an affair with Candy Mungo. And they're like, wait a minute, pump the brakes. Whoop, whoop. So this affair between these two had happened about a year and a half prior to the murder. Mm -hmm. And this immediately changes things, right? This casts a suspicion upon certain parties, obviously. This had all started after a church volleyball game. A few summers back when Candy followed Alan to his car after the game and told him she was attracted to him and initiated an affair. So first and foremost, right. the volleyball game, which, you know, I, mean, I kind of get it like you know if there's a guy that plays really well like it's kind of hot i don't look and all the years i've played volleyball that move has never worked for me but <laughs> i have i've Great. dated guys that i played with and like rec leagues and other stuff like that i've dated quite a few of them <laughs> not recently but like when i was in college and and shortly thereafter i probably dated five or six guys that i played with so not simultaneously of course uh, but I get it, you know, guys that play, that's a hot kind of a trait to me. But you see the little, um, for the Hulu show with Jessica Biel, there's like a scene where they're playing and they like high five each other. And like, you see her getting all kind of titillated by him. And it's, it's oh, really boy. funny. Um, basically, these two agree to this affair. And the way he makes it sound is that it's like really calculated and cold and they've predetermined, hey, we're not going to get emotionally involved. We're just going to have yeah. a sexual thing because my wife isn't interested and, you know, she has, Candy has a lot to offer, but, you know, they're just going to keep it real chill and, and on the DL, right? Okay. And they don't want to become entangled. It's just going to be sex. 
But after a few months into this affair, Alan goes to marriage counseling and decides to repair his marriage. And the two, I guess, mutually agreed to end their entanglement. And Alan okay. goes back to his normal life, presumably. And this is what Alan says. I don't, I think that Candy Montgomery backed the story up, but she never really gave her own version. She was like, yeah, whatever. It's, it's fine. So at the time of Betty's death, this affair between her husband and Candy Montgomery had been done for about six months. Okay. And he never told Betty about the ah. affair and believed that Candy hadn't told her either. Okay. Which is interesting. Right. Um, and this is, you keep in mind as well that Candy was like Betty's best friend. Right. So this is like the ultimate betrayal. Right. And this, the whole thing kind of colors everyone's opinions and suspicions then fall on Candy and Alan for obvious reasons. Uh, yeah. Right? Alan passes the polygraph though. And this focuses attention onto Candy. So they kind of interviewed her church, you know, fellow church members that she was supposedly hanging out with on that day. And they took her vacation Bible school coworkers, they say. So she was teaching vacation Bible school. At okay. This time. Everyone says she was a great teacher. They also say that she left around 9 in the morning and got back around 11, which is a little earlier than she said. But, you know, people can be mistaken about specific times and those sorts of instances, yeah. right? They said she had been a little quiet that day, but otherwise relatively normal. They did notice that she'd also changed clothes, and she was now wearing long sleeves and a high-necked shirt and shoes, etc., despite the fact that this is in the middle of Texas summer. In right? June, yeah. Yeah, so it's unusual. June 17th, they questioned Candy at the police station, and she denies be having any part in Betty's death, and police end up letting her go. But they ask her a polygraph, and she's like, ah, no. So four days after Betty is killed, police look at prints on the scene, and they compare them with Candy's prints, and they're a match. Hmm. Took them four days? I guess. I don't know that they had the prints from Candy right away. I think when they questioned oh, her, they asked her for okay. some samples, and she was, like, you know, trying to help and, and ended up giving that, but they end up matching. And gotcha. maybe she just didn't understand that, you know, the fingerprints could be matched up. Right. And her shoe size five also matches the bloody flip-flop oh size. Oh, that's such a small foot. Yeah, and they issue a warrant for Candy's arrest at that time. So they've got the prints. They've got, you know, her sort of quiet and suspicious behavior. They've got the, the fingerprint, and they're good to go. So police suspect that Betty knew her husband was having an affair. They suspect that there had been some sort of an argument near the garage. And at that point, they believe Candy had grabbed an axe and hit her friend. Jeez. It was basically a crime of opportunity. And then she tried to clean up and cover her tracks, took a shower, etc. And then that's what led to this whole thing, right? Um, June 27th, 1980, it's been two weeks since Betty's uh, shocking death and Candy is arrested. This case was huge at the time and had a lot of publicity. When Candy was arrested, police did a strip search and they found numerous bruises as well as a cut on one of her toes. Candy's mugshot is quintessential 1980s. Like, I've got to post a picture of this okay. in social media because it is just like her clothes, her permed hair, the big glasses. It's so 1980s. Um, the family of Betty was shocked and understandably so, right? Because Candy had been there after the death, had yeah. sympathized, had brought them food, etc. They had been good friends. And now this person is being accused of killing Betty Gore. Yeah. And Candy continues to claim she's innocent. 
The trial starts October 1980, and Candy claims that she did indeed kill Betty. Surprise, surprise. She's not, you know, denying it or anything. She's saying, yes, I did, but it was self-defense. But mm, can self-defense really be 40 blows? Yeah. It's usually just, like, one hit, and then you get the heck out of there. Right, yeah. It's, like, literally stop attacking me, and then I'm trying to find safety. Yeah, so that there's some doubt there. She claims that Betty initially was the one to have the axe and confronted her friend about the affair with her husband and was like, you leave my man alone with an axe and all that craziness. Um, she said she was going to plead not guilty and this was the whole thing was self-defense. And everyone was torn because Candy seems very normal and sympathetic. And she's like very much the least likely suspect in everyone's eyes when this whole thing went down. Um, June 13th, when she said she'd gone to Betty's to talk to her or grab the swimsuit, I guess she was confronted about the affair. Mm-hmm. And in in Candy's mind, she said she had forgotten all about it, which seems a little unlikely. Yeah, like, no. If, if, some, like, if something happens to your best friend who you had seen just hours earlier, you remember that. Yeah. And then she's like, oh, it was over and long gone. It wasn't even, didn't have anything to do with this. But evidently then her friend confronts her with this ax and kind of jer- jer- jerks at her, or, you know, kind of does a little thing at her. And mm-hmm. it, the ax falls and bounces off the kitchen floor and hits one of Candy's toes. This is Candy's story. As axes are wont to do. Yeah. So she's scared. She's going to end up dead. And she tries to leave, but Betty won't let her go. And a fight ensues at that point. They struggle. Candy gets the axe and kills Betty. It's essentially her story. Okay. Prosecution points to the excessive axe blows. I mean, how do you explain that overkill, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And I think that uh, Candy has a psychiatrist testify for her. And this was really huge back then. Evidently, he hypnotized her. Uh. And says that the events in the laundry room triggered Candy from some sort of a childhood memory. And it made her snap. So it was ba- basically a disassociative reaction. Okay. Um, that Betty had shushed her, you know, for some weird reason. God knows why. And that, that had triggered some childhood memory and she'd just gone bonkers and taken the axe and just gone crazy with it and didn't remember anything. Okay. Four and a half hours after <laughs> the story blows up with the weird hypnotized candy and all the other craziness, the jury returns with a not guilty verdict. What? Everyone is shocked. Candy is released. So the jury was three men and nine women, and they believed her. They believed her disassociative story. They believed that, you know, everything she said, they ate it up and believed it. Even so, though, crowds are yelling at Candy as she leaves the courthouse, chanting, murderer, murderer. Um, And then from this point, Candy basically has laid low ever since. Some papers report that she and her family moved to Georgia and then disappeared. Allegedly, she and her husband also divorced at some point. Some papers say it was four years after they moved to Georgia. Others say Candy went into work in the mental health industry. She was a therapist before returning into obscurity, and she returned to her name of her maiden name of Candy Wheeler, and she worked with her daughter Jenny in the therapy field. What? What's interesting about this case um, is that Texas has a standard. Texas has a standard ground law, right? And I think this is why the jury um, let her go and why they found her not guilty. But because deadly force in that state is permitted to prevent violent crime. 
So essentially, this woman comes at you with an axe, you are allowed to use deadly force to prevent the crime from happening to you. That's the standard brown law principle. So it doesn't have anything to do with property? No. Oh, okay. Not in this instance and not with Texas law. Um, Dr. Fred Faison was a psychiatrist who performed that hypnosis session and revealed the childhood trauma that Candy suffered when Betty shushed her. This is really wild. I guess it was a movie that came out in the, the 90s with Barbara Hershey as Candy. It was called A Killing in a Small Town. Hmm. Jessica Biel plays Montgomery um, in Candy on Hulu that came out May 22nd. And then Elizabeth Olsen plays her in Love and Death, which is an HBO series. And then I think there's Dateline NBC also covered the case. It's that wild. That is wild. Cause so like hypnosis is no longer accepted by the court, I don't believe. Shocked that it was to begin with. But then again, I mean, they, they used a lot of like bite mark evidence, hair, um, stuff that's considered junk science now right. used back then. Right. Um, this, particularly in the conviction of some of these big guys like Ted Bundy and so forth. So it's not surprising that in light of the fact that they accepted a lot of these as, you know, science back then, right. they also accepted this hypnosis session. Like, how do you know she wasn't faking it? I mean, she cleaned up and showered. Wild. wild. Well, she wasn't denying that she killed her. She said that she snapped for that short period of time. Right, but I'm saying if she doesn't, rem if she dissociated, at some point she had to come back within her body and realize, oh, I've done this. I need to clean up. I need to shower. Well, evidently it was immediately because right, right. after she killed so, Betty. Like that's, like that's just, yeah. I don't... That's wild. I mean, and it's one of the few cases where a woman snaps like that and doesn't go to jail. Yeah. So, I mean, wild, really wild. And I've seen parts of the, because um, it's a series, the one on Hulu, I've seen parts of it. And I'm not so crazy about Jessica Biel's character because the hair is just a little much for me. Yeah. Um, but other than that, the, the woman who plays Betty Gore, you'll recognize her when you see her. She is just amazing. She's such a good actress. So, like, the series on the whole, I think, is pretty good. Okay. You'll have to watch it and we'll have to, like, have a discussion about okay. it later. But Candy Montgomery, the wow. wild case of the Friday the 13th axe murder case, right? That's bonkers. Yeah. And I had never heard of that. I haven't case before. either. And it's got so many good twists and turns. It's got this stand your ground law that basically allowed for her to be considered not guilty in this Ugh. instance. Like the, the combination of the disassociation for being triggered and the stand your ground law saved her butt. And then she just kind of faded into obscurity. And she's somewhere in Georgia now, living her life. That's so close to me. <laughs> I'm not yeah. comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah. Just wild, wild mm. case. Good stuff. Anything else you want to add before we wrap the session up for the day? No, dude. My mind is blown after that story. Right? <sighs> yeah. We'll post some really cool pictures on this one, too. Uh, what's our social media, Darcy? Yeah, we are on Instagram at the BFD podcast. So apparently there's a lot of good pics, mugshots, and all that yeah, stuff to, to look at. So that'll be, stuff that'll be good. Case. And I don't know about you, but I always like looking at the characters and seeing, you know, the, the players in this game. Like, you see Alan Gore. Oof. Very attractive person. 
Well, what was Candy thinking? Mm, but he played that. volleyball, so maybe that just made him <laughs> made him more attractive. Who knows? So, anyway, murder isn't funny. I'm not trying to laugh. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. If you have some wild stories you want to share with us or some comments about this case or corrections or whatever, we're happy to share that and give you a shout out. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real and always safe. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>